You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, June the 12th. Episode number 120, The Word Who is God, John 1 and 1. In our last study, we answered several questions that have been sent to us regarding the role of pastors and assorted positions. There is much confusion as to how far a pastor's authority goes. There has been much debate regarding how involved in people's lives he is to be. Sadly, there are dictators and cultish like men who eventually obtain these places of power. How do we know who is right? And who is wrong? The best way to know to decipher these things was to define these terms and then see what the biblical role of leadership is. That is exactly what we did. So go ahead and listen, for you don't want to miss this episode. In today's episode, we begin our study on the Gospel of John. There is so much packed within the first verse. This is all we were able to cover today. We dug into word meanings, a few cultural items were thrown in, and many cross-references were brought in as well. John gives us a powerful picture of who Jesus Christ is within this book. We focus on the person of Christ and work of Christ and the identity of Christ. If you care for the Bible at all, you will love this Bible study today. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for tuning in. We're glad that you're with us this morning. We're certainly thankful to have an opportunity to study God's Word one more time. And I can honestly say that I'm rejoicing about this episode we're about to do. Today, we're going to be beginning our journey through the Gospel of John. Yeah, I'm pretty excited too. I enjoyed the book of Revelation, but I think it will be neat to get into another book, especially one of the Gospels. Yeah, I always enjoy the Gospels. Why did you choose the Gospel of John and not Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Well, I've chosen John because of the doctrinal and Christological teachings found in the book. John deals with the deity of Christ a lot. He deals with a lot of theology. He carries a lot of history and culture within his book. And there's several prophetic fulfillments, just to name a few things that I like about the book of John. There's going to be a huge variety of topics that we're going to go through in this study. We're going to look at several parables, multiple themes that run throughout this whole book, and a lot of it will be different from what we have been doing in the book of Revelation. You know, I think this should be a book that everyone who is a believer should really find enjoyable. Yeah, that's for sure. I guess we better get going because I've got quite a bit of groundwork that I plan on laying before we ever get to verse 1. Okay, that sounds good. Let's do it. There's much that could be said about this book, but I want the scriptures to speak for themselves. I'm not basing this study off someone else's work and then going to repurpose it and use it as my own. Rather, I've dug into the Jewish culture and history surrounding the time of Christ to supplement this study. What are you wanting to get out of this study? 
Well, my desire is to linger on the doctrinal points and explain them fully, touch on every verse to a degree. I want to hit every main topic. I want to dig into all the parables as time will permit us. We could really settle in and study this book for the next 20 years and not bring everything out of it. It's so deep. (laughs) Oh, my. That's what I've so been afraid of. Oh, boy. Here we go again. (laughs) The life of John covered a period of time from nearly the beginning of the first century to the beginning of the second. John was from Galilee, probably near the town of Bethsaida, which was not far from Capernaum. His father was Zebedee and his mother was Salome. Salome was among the women who supported the Lord with their substance, according to Luke 8 and 3. She was also at the crucifixion of the Lord, if you'll remember. Zebedee was a fisherman, and he employed several workers under him, according to Mark 1 and 20. John is believed to have been one of the disciples of John the Baptist. But he also did this while working for his father, and that's when he was called by Jesus, according to Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1. You know, one of the things I like about John is his love for the Lord is mentioned often by the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yes, I I love that also. He was one of the three that was always chosen to be with Jesus at special times. John was a specially prepared vessel for God's ministry. From his youth, he had been an apostle. His head had rested on the Lord's breast. He witnessed the transfiguration. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to get Jesus. He was in the palace of the high priest the night they tried Christ. He had stood right near the cross. He was at the sepulcher on the morning of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, John was the first one to recognize the risen Lord standing upon the seashore in John 21. He witnessed the ascension when Jesus ascended back to the Father. Then he turned around and took care of the mother of the Lord until her death. Oh, my. You know, I reckon I subconsciously knew all those things, but I've never put it all together in my mind. You know, that's pretty amazing. Yes, it is. But even after Jesus ascended to the Father, John still saw a lot of stuff, witnessed a lot of stuff, and did a lot of stuff. He saw the Jewish dispensation come to a close in his lifetime. He saw the holy city get overthrown. He was given the visions of the book that we know as Revelation that we just studied. Tradition says that John was banished to the Isle of Patmos by the Romans. Irenaeus says that this happened during the reign of Domitian. There's a few others who say it happened during the reign of Nero, but it happened somewhere in between those two. He was set free under Nerva in AD 96 through 98. Gracious. How long did John live? Well, his date of death is actually unknown, but Jerome places it somewhere around 68 years after the death of Christ, which would make it somewhere around 101 AD. So that means that he was born in the first century and lived into the first part of the second century. You know, concerning the writings of John that we're going to be looking at in such detail, it isn't hard to notice that his style is very different than the other three Gospels. John is very plain spoken like Paul, but he's not as severe as Paul tends to be. Well, John isn't exactly what you call gentle himself, but neither is he vague with what he says. No, he's he's fairly straightforward, and that's what I like about it. It is believed that John wrote five books in our New Testament, the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. The Gospel of John is unquestionably the work of a Jewish man, someone who was an actual eyewitness and someone who was a disciple of Jesus. This book was probably written toward the close of the first century, making it much later than the other three gospel accounts were. Most scholars believe that this book was composed at Ephesus by the request of John's closest friends. They desired to have his oral teachings recorded for the permanent use of the church. They felt like it would benefit the church. 
You know, I've heard that there are differing ideas among scholars as to why John wrote his gospel. Yes, and there's three main theories that have come to the forefront in recent years as to why John wrote his gospel account. I want to go over them real quickly, and then I want to name several other ways that it's been looked at as to why John wrote his gospel. The first one is known as the supplementary theory. This means that John wrote his gospel to supply what was lacking in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, there's no doubt that John's gospel is supplementary, but this is not the only motive or reason why John wrote this. It's supplementary in that John assumes that certain facts are already known by his readers, and he adds to these facts from his own knowledge. John himself denied that his gospel was complete in John 21 and 25, but he stated that his intention was to present the person and work of our Lord. Let me read that for you. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. We have the argument that it's supplementary, but the second theory is that John's gospel is a polemic. Now, polemic means that it was written to oppose the errors that were around from the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, and Serenthus. The gospel is polemical only because it presents the truth which is in opposition to error. John didn't write his gospel only because he wanted to be controversial or to fight against someone. The truth will always debunk heresy, and this usually will be seen as controversial. The third theory is that John's gospel is irenic or conciliatory. This means that the gospel was intended to reconcile several diverse religious views, pull them together, and make one gospel account. Now, I will say this. The gospel is conciliatory but not because John's trying to bring every thought together and make every belief look like it's lined up, but it's conciliatory because it reconciles man with God. The very nature of the subject matter is that the word was made flesh, and this is that which causes man to be reconciled with God. John condemns error while preserving the truth. This gospel is the most complete answer to Gnosticism, even though it was the writing most used by the Gnostics. Believe that or not, this group that John fought against so hard in his lifetime is the group that took his writings and used it to teach their heresy. If John didn't write his gospel accounts for any of those three reasons, why did he write it? Well, many people have debated for years what the original purpose of this gospel was. So that means that there's numerous ideas about it. Some people will argue and say that John wrote this to convince the Jews. Others say that John wrote it to convince the Gentiles. Some believe that John only wrote this to explain the light, according to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Others say that John wrote it to show the meaning of life. There are some who believe that he wrote this book to fight against the spiritual darkness of false doctrines. Other people have said that John wrote it to explain Christ better to his followers. Others believe it's just a treatise to explain what true belief should be, because that's his main focus is belief and faith. Others believe that John wanted to rewrite Genesis through the filter and lens of Jesus Christ. The list of reasoning literally goes on and on without an end in sight. I really think that all of these arguments are ridiculous, for John tells us his purpose in writing his gospel. The purpose of his gospel is expressed in John 20, verse 31. These have been written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that ye believing may have life in his name. Well, boy, that makes sense to me, and I believe it is the strongest argument that any of the others that you mentioned. And most of the key words of John's gospel are found in this verse also. Believe Jesus Christ, Son of God, life in his name. I never noticed that before either. 
There is another reason concerning why John wrote his gospel account, too. Okay. What is it? The Holy Ghost moved on him to write it because it was inspired by the Spirit of God. <laughs> now, I feel that argument right there would be hard to refute. I'm going to read the first verse, and then we're going to dig into this powerful scripture. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The opening words of this chapter are among the most profound that's ever been penned by a man. There's no doubt that John desired his audience to think of the beginning through the lens of the Genesis account. One could even say that John virtually said the same thing that the author of Genesis said. Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God, John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word God. First John 1 and 1 also says that which was from the beginning, the word. <laughs> Why do you think John wanted to take our minds back to Genesis? What is he wanting us to think about from the beginning? Well, I believe there was a divine purpose to why he tagged on to the first words of the Pentateuch. I believe there's a very powerful reason that he did this for. In Genesis, the original writing was done in Hebrew. The first word in the Bible is the Hebrew word Bereshit. Bereshit means in the beginning. This is where we get the word Genesis and in the beginning. The first letter of Bereshit is the Hebrew letter Bet. This is where things get pretty interesting. Oh, really? Well, I'm trying to follow you. Well, the Hebrew letter bet means two. Does this have any significance? Yes. When God created the world, he did it in twos. He created heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, sun and moon, sea and dry land, man and woman, and on and on. It is only when these two opposites come together that God's blessings can be realized. Bet also points to the fact that there are two worlds. Okay. So there's a spiritual world and the natural world which we call heaven and earth. That's right. All throughout scripture, we read there's two testaments. There's two great commandments. There was two good spies. There were two houses of Israel. Jesus sent the disciples out in twos and so on. The number two is very, very powerful within scripture. For some reason, bet is the first letter used within scripture. The book of Revelation records the last word, which is amen. The last letter of amen in the Hebrew language is noon. All right, if you put the first and last letters of the Bible together, you would have the Hebrew word ben. The Hebrew word ben means son. Oh, wow. I see where you're going with this now. My, my mind is racing. Yes, the whole Bible was written in order to point us to the son, which is the second member of the Godhead. Interestingly enough, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam or the second man. As a matter of fact, John not only takes us back to the beginning, but he takes us to a place in history before the beginning and even before time itself. God existed before the beginning. Therefore, he is before the beginning. We have other verses which attest to this fact, such as John 17 and 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self and with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Colossians 1 and 17. Paul says, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. What John is doing is pulling our minds to the one who created the beginning. Yeah, he's wanting us to think about the one who began the beginning. <laughs> yeah. John mentions this again in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14, when he spoke of the beginning of the creation of God. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the one who began the creation. All right, sum it up for me. 
What are we supposed to get from all this? He is the beginning. That means he's the creator. If he is the creator, he's the originator. If he's the one everything originated with, he's the first. If he's the first, then he's the alpha. If he's the alpha, he's the one who started the creation process. He began time. He brought all things into existence by his eternal nature and divine Godhead. Do you see what John is doing here in John 1 and 1? Yes, I do. He's making us think of God. Yes, and not only that, he also wants us to think about who God is. This book was written so we could understand who God is. Amen. And without a proper understanding of God, we'll never comprehend the scriptures. Without a proper understanding of God, though, I'll say this, we'll never comprehend our own existence. John takes what we believe about God, and then he begins working on our mental image of him. Yeah, well, his goal is to get us to identify Jesus Christ with God. Yes, and I'll take a step further than that. He also wants us to identify him as God. As we go through this book, you're going to see that John frequently does this. He does this in one of the most iconic passages in the book, John 14, verses 1 through 4. You remember that passage, don't you? Yeah, that's where Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. That's right. He began to tell them some things that only God knew. And then he told them, said, you believe in God, but you're going to have to also believe in me. In other words, he's saying that I am equal with God. I personally believe this is another one of John's main purposes in writing this book. His goal was to persuade everyone who reads this account of this very thing. I want to ask you in the audience today, are you completely convinced today that Jesus is the word? Are you thoroughly convinced that Jesus is with God? But do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is God? And here's the thing. Don't get scared by that statement. I know some people who don't like that and they say, oh, that's oneness theology. No, it's not. It can be, but it's not. They believe that Jesus is the father. Jesus is God, but Jesus is not the father. And Jesus is not the Holy Ghost. He's not all three members of the Godhead. He's the second member in the Godhead. But yet he is in the Godhead, meaning he is God. You know, John works hard in trying to tie our thoughts of the creator with Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, what theme or what topic or what idea would John use to get us to see Jesus Christ as God being the creator? Well, John used the word Yes, and he uses the word, which is the Greek logos, in order to achieve that main goal. Logos has the double meaning of thought and speech. Well, I don't guess I understand exactly what that means. Well, this means that Christ is related to God as a word is related to an idea. All right, let me clarify this. The word is merely a name for the idea, but it is the idea itself expressed. Christ is not a name for the Father but he is the expression of the Father, or the express image, if you don't mind me borrowing from Hebrews. The Word is the expression of the idea. You know, by this, John is telling us that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Amen. That's what I'm trying to say. The Logos is the Word who was before the creation with God, and not only was he with God, he was God. He is one in essence and nature, yet personally distinct from the Father. Let me read you John 1 and 18. John says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He is the revealer and interpreter of the invisible God. Jesus is the reflection and visible image of God. He made all things through creation, according to John 1 and 3. Let me read you that. 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then he became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He accomplished the redemption of the world, according to Philippians 2 and 6, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The name Word expresses the nature of Christ better than any other name could. When John names Jesus, he chose to call him the Word rather than the Son in the very beginning. Why do you reckon he did it that way? Well, some people believe that the Word is a phrase that's more communicable than Son is. Son, when you speak of it, you can reference the Father that begot him and it makes sense. But Word refers to him that conceives it, the very idea that conceives the thought and it's expressed into a word. The word speaks, and the word is that which is spoken. The word is the voice that we hear uttered. Christ as the word refers to the Father from which he comes forth from. It also refers to the flesh that he took on to clothe him, for the word was made flesh. The word also refers to the doctrine Jesus brought to us and taught us, doesn't it? Yes, for Christ is he who reveals our inner conception of God. Some people argue and say that Christ had to change in order to become the Word. Now, that's easily defeated by John 1 and 1, for the Bible says he was the Word from the beginning. Yes. But I also want to go on record as saying this right here. Becoming flesh didn't change the Word at all. Christ was no less the Word in the womb of the Virgin Mary than he was when he hung on the cross. Christ was no less the Word when he was laying in the manger than he was at the beginning of time. Even after coming and being born in a human birth in the incarnation, Jesus still remains as much God as the Father and the Holy Ghost does. Amen. I'm about ready to have church over here. (laughs) Yeah, and I need to get calmed down so we can get finished up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let me angle towards a close here. It'll be a few moments. But this text from the Greek is worded very interestingly. In the Greek, you would read it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the word. There's no denying the idea that John was expressing when you read it straight from the Greek text. Well, this is definite proof that the scriptures point to the deity of Christ. Yes, the scriptures affirm his divinity over and over, and they portray his identity in an undeniable fashion. In the beginning, the word was there. This is where what we believe becomes so critical concerning the word. To be there in the beginning, the word also must have been present before the beginning. Right. I tell you what, that that's sensible to me, and I believe it that way. Amen. If the word had not been before the beginning, he would have had to been created. This is where it all breaks down at. Mm-hmm. This is the line of demarcation that separates those who believe that Jesus was a created being and those who believe that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Yeah. But you know, the early church would have concluded that people like that were heretics. Yes, they would. So anytime you run into someone who hedges on whether Christ existed with the Father before the beginning, you have run into someone who secretly or maybe even openly believes that Jesus is created. Because he was there in the beginning, he must also be the creator. The word who was in the beginning was with God. Our English word with is the Greek word pros. Pros is best defined as toward. This implies a face-to-face relationship. Wow. So we could say that the Word is face-to-face with God. That's right. And that's a great way to prove that the Father and Son are co-equal and co-eternal. We know that God is eternal. Therefore, the Word must be eternal as well. Then we read that this Word who was in the beginning and who was with God, he is also God. 
God is the Word, and the Word is God. This is the only explanation that makes sense when you truly think about it. Well, if the Word was in the beginning before creation, and then He was with God, who is eternal, the Word must also be God. Amen. This is the exact conclusion John wants us to come to. It's for this very purpose John wrote his gospel. The very first verse in the book of John contains one of the plainest declarations that Jesus is God that's found within Scripture. My goodness. John didn't waste any time in pointing out his reason, purpose, and desire. No, he didn't. This expressing, speaking, revealing word is God. A God who doesn't speak is not God. A wordless God would not be God at all. A word that is not God could accomplish nothing. You know, what good would it be to have a God, but he doesn't speak? Why is it not enough to only say that Jesus was divine, though? I know a lot of people that says, well, I I believe that Jesus was divine and and stuff, but I, I can't say that he was God. Okay, here's the thing. That's the main point. Some of them won't go that far. They'll just say, oh, I believe he's divine. They won't tell you they do not believe that he was God. Here's the reasoning, mainly because any being that is eternal or from heaven would be a divine being. All angels are divine beings. All cherubim are divine beings. All seraphim are divine beings. And get this, all demons are also divine beings. So if you say that Jesus was divine, you could mean that he was deity, or you could mean that he was an angel, or you could even mean that he was a demon. So if you say he's just divine, that leaves a lot of things open for interpretation. One problem with this is that all of those creatures that I mentioned are just that. They're creatures. They had a beginning. They were created. Angels were created. Cherubim were created. Seraphim were created. And demons were created. If we relegate Jesus as to only being divine, he could still be an angel, which means that he could be created, yet still be called divine. And trust me, I know this argument well, for I actually know several people who profess that Jesus is divine, but yet they believe he was created somewhere in eternity past. I want to tell you right here, that's not the reason John wrote his gospel, to get people to the point where they can say, I think he may be divine, uh, you know, maybe a good angel, or maybe he was the best angel and God exalted him to that high position, or God created him for this very purpose, heresy. That's heresy. You're taking and saying that God was created. If God can be created, he can be a figment of your imagination as well. He's not created. He's been from everlasting, and he'll be to everlasting, and he'll always be. Wow. Great lesson today. A great start on the Gospel of John. We got a question in here today. We got time for it, I suppose. (laughs) Let's do it. You always do have time for these questions. The Baptists teach that people can lose their reward but still make it to heaven. Is this biblically accurate? It depends on who you ask and where you get your sources from. I know a lot of people who says it's only a Baptist doctrine, as the questioner has implied. But what does the Bible say? That seems like it would be a good place to go look. And the questioner said, is this biblically accurate? So I'm glad that he's wanting his answer from the Bible. Let me go ahead and tell you, hang on to your hat. There is a biblical case for the law of rewards. I'm going to read you a few portions of Scripture and let the Bible speak for itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. 
For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He says, every man is going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Here's what they're going to use to build. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so is by fire. This is saying that you may work for God and the works that you do may stand at the end and you get rewarded for it, or the works you do may be burned up by carelessness or lack of stewardship or however that might be, but you still make it to heaven. Did you catch that? He shall suffer loss, the loss of a reward, but he himself shall be saved. That doesn't mean that he can live like the devil, like the Baptist teaching. He can backslide and drink beer and go cuss and do whatever he wants to do and still get to heaven. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying the works that you do will either stand for you or against you after salvation. Mark 9 and 41. This is Jesus. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Obviously, there's some kind of reward. Hebrews 11 and 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. 2 John 1 and 8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Make sure you don't lose the works that you've done because you're going to get a full reward for those works. Just by these scriptures right here, there's a huge case to argue in favor for rewards. As a matter of fact, remember the reward system Jesus spoke of? Some would bring forth 30-fold, some would bring forth 60-fold, and others 100-fold. People who have struggled with sin and finally overcome it and those who gave God very little service stand to lose what reward they are worthy of because they're no longer worthy of one. If you have no righteous works, you'll receive no righteous rewards. There's much speech also concerning receiving a crown in heaven, which could be the reward or a reward. I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures concerning that. James 1 and 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them who love him. Revelation 2 and 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. 1 Corinthians 9 and 24. Know ye not, they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So obviously Paul's saying we're fighting, we're warring, we're racing to get a crown. First Peter 5 and 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. In other words, this is a guarantee to those who have lived right. Second Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. For I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Did you catch that? Paul said, I've lived right, and now there's a crown of righteousness the Lord is going to give me, but not to me only, 
He's going to give one to everyone who loves his appearing. Not only this, we must always keep in mind, there's a danger of losing our reward that we could get. I want you to listen to this in Revelation 3 and 11, what Jesus said. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. We've got a crown laid up for us, waiting for us to get to heaven. But Jesus says, be careful what you do, that no man take thy crown. I want to give the listener who wrote in this question more scriptures for this. Read Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Go to Luke chapter 6, read verses 32 through 35. Read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Go to the book of Mark and read chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. The law of rewards is all throughout the New Testament. It's not just a random doctrine. It's not just something that's mentioned once in Scripture. Nobody really knows what it means. It's not a Baptist doctrine in the sake of, yeah, the Baptists do teach it, but it's a biblical doctrine. I don't care who teaches it. If it's in the Bible, it is a biblical doctrine. Say, well, that's a holiness doctrine. No, if it's in the Bible, it's a biblical doctrine. And so, yes, there is a law of rewards. I don't know what all it is. I don't know what we'll receive. I can't guarantee you who will get what, but I do know you'll be rewarded according to your works. Good answer, Brother Donnie. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news and current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Come back next Friday, June the 16th, for special episode number 86, Q&A number 8 with Brother Chris Lee. So much for me, this I know. Really changed my heart all around. Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.